Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode two of Within and Without Podcast. I am Rio Oshas, co-founder of Rao Race, Ancestor Health, Outdoors, Knowledge. And I'm Everett. Over the last several months, we got to hear from Black organizers and cyclists as they shared their experiences of joy and community through cycling and how 2020 has impacted the way they live, ride, and thrive. We got to hear from folks about how they got into cycling in the outdoors, how cycling or the cycling community brings joy during turbulent times, and how the cycling and outdoor communities are responding to the racial reckoning and call for public accountability that's been brought on by the Black Lives Matter movement and ongoing protests. Yeah, I think what's important to call forward um, in this particular episode is we are going to center some of the, you know, bike joy. Often when we think about bikes, people think about smiles, they think about laughing, they think about hair, you know, their hair running in the wind, you know, they think about pedaling, they think about all sorts of really wonderful things, you know, and but there is a place where bikes also meet, you know, literally where the, you know, where the rubber hits the road, right? And, and, and reality hits and sinks in that sometimes not sometimes, but a lot of times, even you know, biking while black is not very um, safe, right? Through through a variety of communities, through a variety of reasons, right? And so, as we're looking at, you know, this mega twenty twenty year, really as a, you know, to put it as kind of like a MRI that has happened over injustices throughout time immemorial since you know America was stolen, right? Stolen land that America was. We've seen the injustices, particularly for our, our black relatives in this in this way. And and really we were called to I know I for me it's definitely been a call to an action to make sure that we are all of us who are, you know, who are not black, really step up to celebrate, protect, center, prioritize, and resource our black relatives at this time. I got to speak with writers and organizers Grace Anderson and Devon Callen, who I met through the WTF Summit in 2019, as well as Rachel Ulzer, who's one of the co-founders of Pedal to the People, which is a collective of Black, Indigenous, and people of color moving their lives forward two wheels at a time. But Rio, you did most of the interviews for this episode, so do you want to introduce some of the folks you got to talk with? Yeah, I'm really honored to actually introduce some of these, uh, yeah, some of the friends and then great community organizers. First one will be Sarah Alabanza, who has co-founded Black Freedom Outfitters. Actually, Sarah and I got to ride on a bike tour from Eugene, Oregon to San Francisco on a very transform- transformational bike tour. Um, Sarah then also introduced me to Ariana Lima from Puerto Rico, who's doing incredible work with the Black Bike Culture Mapping Project which is literally mapping safe spaces, whether it's a bike shop or coffee shop or just a bike club that is safe for our Black relatives to attend and be part of. I also got the honor to speak with Lydia Moore, who's a bike mechanic and of different gears. And what's incredible about Lydia Moore's story is the idea of wanting to start a bike shop that you know has a, a business model geared and tailored literally to people and servicing people. Um, I also had the chance of interviewing two SJ Brooks scholarship recipients, Olivia Williams, who's a bike mechanic, and Caitlin Durst, who is a poet. My name is Zara Alabanza. I also like to go by Tinker Pan Feather. My pronouns are she and her, and they also are a lot of other things as I'm constantly just working through what gender means to me, um, particularly as someone who presents 
femme to the external world, but feels very fluid. So pronouns are an interesting conversation piece for me these days. Um, and I am currently based in Atlanta. I grew up in Hawaii and basically lived on the beach. So I know that my introduction to outdoors definitely comes from that. And I'm a beach bum and I was born in the summer. So the way that I'm outdoors now uh, started maybe 15 years ago, but like, you know, cute car camping kind of situations until I met a woman named Nora Dye and she rode her bike across the country. And I was like, who does that? And white people do that, which is pretty great because it introduced me and drastically changed my life because I went on a bike tour with nine women folk at the time and allies from Eugene, Oregon to San Francisco. And that introduced me to not only bike touring, but bike um, backcountry hiking. And that experience has contributed to where I'm at in my life now in that I have an outfitter company and I'm a co-founder of a bicycle collective. I founded Red Biking Green Atlanta and I founded it because I needed joy and I was like, I wanna ride bikes more. I wanna do that with black people. Bike touring is really where I get my joy from. So not just riding around the city, that's fun, that's cute, but bringing people to bike touring and having the experience with folks who are doing something they never thought they would do, like ride a bike 400 miles over multiple days and sleep outside, excites me and I really, I really want to do that more. <laughs> I'm like, it's cool to ride in a city and hold, host community rides, but I really want to guide people on bike touring adventures across more Black geographies. Black Freedom Outfitters is an entity that curates outdoor experiences along Black geographies, mostly for Black people. And on these tours or hiking adventures, people learn a lot of skills because they have their, we're, we're, we're camping. Some of it is in the backcountry, some of it is at campsites, but you're learning one, how to be in community with people that you're not in community with. So you're with strangers. So what does communication look like? Um, you're learning how to build a fire together or learning how to do it for the first time by someone who's an expert in it. You're learning um, how do we care for each other when there's conflict or when there's an injury or when someone gets lost. So there's a lot of skill sharing and skill development that happens with Black Freedom Outfitters. And we find this really important because we're Black people who live in America. We live in this world when we're having as many skills as possible it contributes, can easily contribute to our ability to protect ourselves at any given time. And, you know, one may not think that learning how to build a fire in the backcountry is going to be useful when you live in an urban setting, but there's a lot of things that come with building fires, patience being one of them, um, tending to something being another part of it, knowing what materials you need. And when you're having to solve problems in your immediate situation, being able to get a scope of the land becomes really important. And these are all things that, like, you practice while you're adventuring in the outdoors. And with Black Freedom Outfitters, we're always uplifting and naming where a skill can be used in the country or in the back country on tours and where it can be applied in someone's day-to-day -day life. And we hear the, the testimony of so many people who have come on our bike tours lends to, wow, 
I didn't know I needed that. I learned so much. I never imagined I could do this thing. And what I've noticed is in the pandemic, I've seen posts from some people who have come on our tours where they're like, I'm grateful that I went on a Black Freedom Outfitters um, adventure because I know how to do this thing and it's been useful to me during COVID. So it's been really great to see and know that we've supplied people with useful tools for their everyday life that they got while they were on tour with us. I am Ariana Lima, she, her, and I'm currently based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I um, came across a post about RBG riding and I hadn't, I don't think I had rode a bike in a really long time. I was a rollerblader, like skater, not skateboarder, but roller skates, uh, but definitely a, a really big hiker. And I wanted to see more of Atlanta. I remember when I became a driver in Havana that I would take MARTA to the bus to see more of the city, right? And learn more of the city. And I thought riding through the city with a bunch of black folks down there like heaven. And it was. And from then on, I just rode all the time. A couple of years later, I met my wife and we ditched our car and we lived carless for about a year and a half. And we rode through the city with our, at the time, seven, eight year old for everything we needed, groceries, shopping, everything. And that really informed my environmental politic. It really informed my parenting politic. It informed so much, like riding on a bike has really opened up uh, pieces of me that I wasn't quite sure were there or that needed to be open. I have a very special love for outside. And so it's a different take on what the trees look like and what the air feels like when you're on a bike to when you're walking or when you're running. And I mean, it's the closest thing to flying for me. And so the joy that it brings me is literally when I'm riding, watching other people find that. I mean, you can almost see it kind of cross across their face where they reach that point where they can feel their toes and they can feel the tip of their ears, all of it, like in the wind and as they're riding. And that brings so much joy to me to know that folks are finding that kind of like introspection in the open air because outside uh, is so great. The, the body, the, the being in touch with your body, so much is housed in us. I think biking opens those doors that some people just didn't know were there. I find that most cyclists, once they're on it, they're addicted. And it's because we love finding all those little tiny doors in our body that we just have not opened yet. It's super fun and we become our whole selves. Oh, I miss my community. <laughs> so here in San Juan is actually a really big cycling community that I am attempting to shimmy into. But in Atlanta, in Atlanta, it was, in Atlanta, my community were just the radicals, I like to call them. The ones who just live fearlessly, who um, love fiercely, and who believe that liberation's in our lifetime. When we share cycling in our community, we also share food. We also share community, like, you know, community time. The uh, RBG always ends a lot of the rides with like a sit down and a cool down and, and just a time to chill and, and commune with each other. Um, a place where people whose bodies might not allow them to cycle with us to come and still share in like that 
you know, that kind of euphoria that happens when the ride is over and you guys are just sitting and having your water, um, that it's contagious. And so if you, if your body is differently abled and it can't ride a bike, we always invited people to join us at the end of it so that we could still all share in the euphoria. And so for me, that's how I really enjoy sharing it because I'm very cognizant that not all of my comrades and all my compas can get on a bicycle, but I want them to feel the joy and I want them to find those little doors in their body. And sometimes it's just infecting them with that joy by sharing spaces with them outside of just the actual cycling. The Black Mapping Project is a geo-mapping project of international Black bike businesses. It's going to incorporate Black shops, Black groups, um, Black advocacies, Black uh, uh, bike influencers that are on Instagram and Facebook. And we want to compile all of this into like the central database so that they can encounter safe spaces. And so what we have envisioned it as is like a green book for biking. Um, and so what some people might not know is the green book is a Negro travel guide that was used during Jim Crow era and post Jim Crow era to indicate to folks of color where safe places for them were, where they could go and eat, sleep, be merry, where they could drive through, where they shouldn't drive through, where they could keep driving through but not stop. Um, and though we don't necessarily have to encounter all of the same horrors, if we're talking about cyclists crossing state lines, if we're talking about cyclists cycling outside of their home spaces, then what we envisioned was that they would have a very near and a very accessible way to know where they can go to be safe or who they can call to be safe. Because if we're talking about interstate cycling, then we're talking about flat tires, we're talking about chains popping off, and we want our cyclists, our people, black and brown folks, to know who they could pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I'm stuck here, and know that that safe person is coming to help them. So it's really important, and it is a way for our community to understand that we are thinking about everyone, right? Because if it's a black bike shop, it would serve a biker. But if you have a motorist who also needs to know where a safe spot is, then it also serves them. And so I love to think whole pictures. And so I just think about this guide as actually just being like something that we can hand over to our communities and say, hey, we've found some really safe places internationally. And so travel in a way, knowing that you deserve to travel, but also know that there are places you can go to if you need to, because travel is hard for people of color. And I think a lot of people feel like maybe they don't deserve to travel or maybe it's just so anxious ridden traveling that they don't want to. I know I find myself on road trips all the time wondering if I should stop for gas. And so I think it's important. We should know each other across borders. We should know each other across countries. We should know who we are everywhere. And so the guide is that. But also the way like allies, right? allies would want to see the project and be like, well, I'm not on there. And I really feel like a safe space. And so I would love for allies to hit the email and say, hey, I noticed the app and I'm not on there. I, I didn't get a, you know, and I feel like I'm really safe. Wonderful. Like, can we sit down and have a conversation of what that looks like? I would love to add you, you know, on, as, on the app as a solidarity shop. And, um, and for allies to question themselves, why didn't I make it on the solidarity shop? 
right? Why, why am I not on this? Like, I really find myself an ally. Why, why have I not been invited? And then maybe that will open up conversations. Some people, sometimes slight or slight offense brings people to the table. I really believe the, the central goal for a lot of these newer cycling groups, and of course, all the older cycling groups, is to grow these microscopic communities into macroscopic communities, into macro organisms almost, these huge entities within cities that provides exclusive spaces for Black folks. And I find that in a lot of cities, there's this pushback from non-Black folks about the exclusivity. So a lot of the Black groups that are popping up right now and that have already existed have a lot of Black exclusivity. They have rides where everyone rides, but they have a lot of rides when only we ride. And I think that the response of the current movement that's happening, this new iteration of it, because don't we have one every year? Because we shouldn't have one every year, but every year we have a new one because we have a new person that has galvanized us into it. But this particular year, I think coupled with COVID has really just set it afire. And I think the response is again, safe space. I think black folks have found that congregating and communing in these exclusive black spaces on these moving apparatuses while also getting in touch with their bodies are safe spaces that shield them from what is happening right now. Black folks are really in desperate need of safe spaces. Safe spaces where they feel cared for, watched for, loved, and heard, and seen. And so I think that's what it's designed. I think it's brought a lot of Black folks that are deciding, I want to be seen and I want to be heard. And I think that I'm going to do that best around other folks that look like me. And I really like bikes. And so I'm going to do it while I'm on a bike. I think it's really this thing of I'm going outside so I can see more of us. And then more of us will start setting ourselves into these communities that empower us. That's what a lot of us don't feel is empowered. Bikes give us that. I mean, if you feel like you can fly, you're empowered. And it really, that's what a bike can do to some for somebody is that sense of free movement in an air that you didn't think was your birthright. Like you didn't think, like so many people are telling you, you don't even really deserve this air. Like, just be grateful you're here. Like, just be grateful you exist, but don't live that existence. Don't don't relish in that existence. Don't flourish that existence. And I think Black folks on bikes is the epitome. I mean, sucking up air, folks told you you didn't have the right to in every single breath that you're on that bike. And when you do that in groups, it's a church. And I don't know if anyone wants to call it any other kind of thing, right? But it's a church. And so that's what the movement's done. It's turned cycling into another one of our churches. And there we praise our bodies, we praise the outside. We call in more of what we deserve and more of what is our right to have and more of you, y'all better get to this table because the more we get empowered, the more we're gonna demand. And we'll and I think we'll demand it louder and with more voices as time goes on. Hi, my name is Lydia. I am based on occupied Lenape land in Brooklyn, New York. I use all pronouns, but I tend to use they and them when I'm in spaces with white people that I need to make sure they 
can respect me in other ways besides how they perceive my gender. Also, I'm also, oh yeah, this is audio. So I'm also a, a black queer person. Um, so if you see me on the street, I'm, I'm gonna look like a black queer person. As an adult for cycling, uh, I got gifted a bike in 2006 that my grandmother won in a grocery store contest. I'd say that I really started to get more inspired to do like long distance cycling and bike camping. Some friends invited me to do an MS ride in rural Illinois, like in central Illinois. And pretty much from there, planned a trip in California with some friends very randomly and was just like, okay, this is my lifestyle. So I've ridden rain or shine through the winters of Chicago. It's, it's really kind of given me a, a different sort of autonomy to travel and to where I go and how I move through spaces, uh, because no matter what, I can always just get on my bike and leave, or I can go on to the next place um, when I'm ready. So uh, really understanding how my pace uh, can, can be mine without having to follow someone else's pace every time. Cycling brings me joy in so many ways. You know, just the feeling of endorphins when you're like riding a bike and then you're suddenly like, wow, I feel so good. Why do I feel so good? The wind going through your hair, the sun. Um, and then cycling and community uh, is, is so funny because the same thing that you feel by yourself, you suddenly realize that when you're with a group of friends or a group of people, they're all feeling it at the same time too. And then you're like all smiling or you're all like, yeah, wow, this feels so good. We're doing this together. And knowing that you have like that kind of community where we're, we're supporting each other as we make it through the ride. Um, I organize and lead bike rides through Brooklyn. And I think I've learned that I have far more capacity to, to learn how to care for myself and for others uh, through cycling, um, through leading rides with people. I might be able to get by with a couple of, of bars and some goose, but remembering that other people might need a little more things than that. And maybe even when I see that person who I think is like, whoa, that person's a great cyclist doing great things. I'm going to have different needs that they're going to have. Um, and being able to support each other as we fulfill those needs, either on our own or in community. I would say that like ever since I started commuting around the city in Chicago, I was like, well, I need to make friends who ride bikes too. And, and it was hard for a long time. It took me a long time to like find other people who were like me that wanted to ride bikes. And so that was really great when I had like this super cute click and we'd like go to the club together on our bikes or we'd like ride to work or ride home from work. Um, and then I moved to New York and started actually working in the bike industry. And I think when you when you go from like building your own to then being in a space where you expect it to kind of already exist for you, there's like a, a dissonance that happens. So I didn't really, I knew that the bike industry was super white and super male dominated, but I didn't understand it uh, as fully until I started working in it. You know, I would go to bike shops and be like, hey dude, sell me a, sell me a tube, sell me a tire. And then I'd go home and do, do the work myself or like find someone else I knew who could help me out, which I guess was like probably my subconscious being like, you don't need to talk to those white guys. You know, once I started working in the industry and I thought like, surely I'd be able to find more people to ride bikes with. And it still wasn't easy. It was still very hard um, to make friends with the people who had already been in the bike shop. Right. There's like a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of like tribalism that comes up in those sort of spaces. When I was finally comfortable enough to go to my shop owner, 
I just said, hey, I, I want to do this thing. I want to have people create a bike ride series for people of color, for queer folks. Um, and then a friend of mine later was like, oh, I know someone else who's already doing it. So I was like, well, let me see what they're doing. Um, so Different Gear is actually a collaboration um, between Brooklyn Boyhood, uh, my homies, Ryan Holmes, and then uh, Amber uh, Drew from Life Cycle Biking. Um, so Brooklyn Boyhood organizes like uh, black queer parties in Brooklyn um, for folks who don't know them. Uh, and Amber has been organizing mental health uh, spaces uh, that center the bicycle and the outdoors for black folks in Brooklyn. So it was kind of cool to see that it was already existing and I could like use my access to a bike shop to resources and share it with them in a way that uh, I think really propelled different gear into a whole nother realm of like community building. So now we pretty much lead rides once a month. Um, of course, pandemic era, we've been a little bit slower to return to that, um, really grappling a lot with what it means to uh, carry a group of 25 or 30 cyclists who are all people of color, who are some variations of queer or trans um, or non-binary and, and making sure that it's a safe space. Um, that's always been a, a really important goal of ours is to create that safe space. Um, I think the way I've begun to really define community is like having a shared goal, even if we have differences, um, you know, clashes, personality moments or moments where people need to learn or be held accountable. Um, we're all still acting with that shared goal or that common goal in mind. So for Different Gear, uh, our community is centering queer and trans people of color. Um, and sometimes we have bike rides that are only for black folks, um, you know, and, and I think having people understand that the need to center ourselves in this way is so that we can build new communities and new ways of existing in this society that's like, you know, late stage capitalism crumbling. My name is Grace Anderson, she, her pronouns, and I'm based on Ohlone territory in Oakland, California. I don't have any memories on a bike before early 20s um, and I'd moved to San Francisco and I didn't have a car and I couldn't figure out the buses like the first time I took a bus um, I was too nervous to ask how to make the bus stop and so I picked up a bike like I realized that a lot of folks in San Francisco were bike commuting and it seemed doable for me like I saw the bike lanes and a lot of folks were doing it and so I went to Valencia Cyclery on mission and spent my whole paycheck on a bike and then eventually I learned about people who would bike further than work. And I was like, oh, tell me more. And they were going everywhere, like on their bicycles. And right before I left San Francisco, I got a new job. And I was like, okay, I want to celebrate this in a way that feels really good for me. And so I decided to bike to Santa Cruz by myself. And I didn't know how to change a tire at this point. Like, didn't know what a derailleur was. Like, uh, yeah, there's just so much I didn't know. I'm so grateful, like, nothing happened to my bike on the way down. That just opened up my world. It's like, oh, I can get anywhere on this thing. And I can do it by myself. Like, I think um, prior to biking, I was super into climbing. And I always needed a partner. And other activities, I always felt like I needed a partner. And cycling was one activity that I could do by myself. I know as a Black woman, like, I don't get a ton of opportunities and public spaces to, like, feel my power. And there's two memories that I have that will always remind me that I am powerful and the first one is that uh, I went on a mountaineering trip uh, in my early 20s to Alaska 
And then the second one is biking to Santa Cruz by myself, like something I'd never done before. And my only goal that I gave myself was not to get off my bike. Yeah, as a Black woman, that was just mind blowing for me. And it still continues to be a tool or like a, a vehicle for confidence and grounding purposes and liberation. Like I think my joy is very much attached to the liberation or the liberatory future that I want to see. I think back to that um, that bike ride and what I didn't know and what I didn't have in terms of gear and knowledge. And just a reminder that I, none of, you don't need that much. I think like the more I got into cycling, I was like, oh, I need this and this and this and this. And I don't need any of it. Like I did that ride with very little. Um, and just reminding myself of that. Um, the people that I've had the privilege of introducing to cycling, specifically like overnight rides and like getting to a destination that we said we were going to get to. Like you see it on the map, but once you get there, you're like, wait a minute, I got here like using my own two legs. Um, it's a very much like a human powered experience. And I think introducing people to that has given me so much joy. I think I used to think about outdoor activities and like how I met, built community. I was like, okay, like, if I want to build a larger climbing community, I need to find other climbers. And now I'm like, who do I want to hang out with? And do they want to do the activity that I want to do? Because for a while, I thought I hated some of these activities, but it was actually like, I just didn't feel excited or empowered by the community I was around. PGM1 is a, um, a racial affinity space for Black, Indigenous, and people of color who work in connection with the land. To have a space where we could gather without code switching, where we could show up as ourselves completely where we didn't have to explain while we were there, and to also just dive deeper into the systems of oppression that operate on us and between us and the absence of whiteness. And so it started in 2017 by Aparna Rajagopal Durbin, Sophie Sarkar, and some other folks. And has grown now to like a beautiful network of 100 plus Black, Indigenous, and people of color who seek to disrupt and to like reimagine and then also like recenter ourselves and the environmental space. And I would say it's connected with my bicycling work or like my love of bicycles, because I think something that PGM1 does really well that I don't think was necessarily the intention, but a byproduct is just centers joy and happiness. I think what happens when we are given space that reflects and celebrates us that like gives way to joy and happiness and that's how I feel on my bike. I like when I'm among uh, other cyclists of color and other black cyclists, I just am so giggly and so happy. Um, so it's always a reminder of like what I'm fighting for. And then also centering joy in that work. Yeah, this year has been really fucking hard. In May, I just like collapsed. Uh, it was just so much. Um, but one of the redeeming things is just like the hyper visibility of black people. Like, I knew we were out here, but like, we're like really out here. And I've just been connecting with people I wouldn't have known about otherwise. And then it just reminds me, like, we've got us, you know, like the communities that we build, like the mutual aid and the way that people are caring for each other right now. And the different responses to like supporting communities that have emerged because of the pandemic. Like, that's what I'm excited about. Like these capitalist corporations, like, I can't. Not to bring my plants into this conversation, but I've went from like one house plant to 15 since the pandemic. I'm just, it's wonderful. It's like such a sweet reminder of like joy and growth. Um, but like some of my plants are like reaching for the light right now. And I feel like a lot of people in my community are doing that and just like finding ways to try to stay connected, whether that's like bike rides, 
or like weekly Zoom calls. Yeah, I've also noticed like just like a deep generosity. Like I know my friends are at, my black friends are at capacity and tired, but the generosity that we're able to still show each other is just wild. I've been trying to extend that to other people because I know we're all maxed out. Like it's been a really hard year. Um, People are dying. Black people are still being murdered in the middle of a pandemic. Like it's a lot, but I think that the ability to access that generosity has been really lovely to watch. My name is Devin Cowens. My pronouns are she, her. So I came to cycling actually as the form of transportation. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer and didn't have any money and needed to get around DC. Um, Biking was cheaper than public transportation. So I guess when I like came into my own as someone who felt free and um, invincible, it would have to be like traipsing through DC on my bike, sort of like feeling the wind on my back, like feeling joy, going really fast. While I think I'm someone who is continually um, trying to learn and improve and um, educate, 2020 has upped the ante on that, so to speak. Um, After the Maude Arbery murder, I didn't go outside for three weeks. um, And that hit me on a deeper level than I was expecting, given the proximity to Atlanta and just sort of how often I was going outside alone on my bike. And so I think I have maintained riding my bike, um, gaining joy from that. But now I sort of see that as a rebellion in some ways, a necessary rebellion um, around me both like you know at times fearing being so low on a bike but also recognizing that that's something that I need and pushing against what that expectation of me is. Earlier on in the pandemic um, was able to connect with PGM1 the organization that is creating space for um, black and brown folks committed to um, environmental justice but other forms of justice for folks of color. And they have done a number of BIPOC Thursdays and and just different sort of online virtual spaces for Black folks and also um, other folks um, who are non-white. And that has been a real joy to connect with people that um, are experiencing something similar, but maybe I don't know as well, and to just kind of share stories, hold space for one another where um, there's no performing, Um, I can exist as my full self in all of my forms. And so that has been really um, unique and something I didn't know I needed. I have been energized by being around people, being around Black folk and in other um, BIPOC communities where I can sort of share and and think and feel and, you know, just be free. And that has been um, really healing, I think. But I think there needs to be a balance of one, resting, two, acknowledging the immense amount of labor that is required outside of existing in a pandemic, the labor required to organize and and do things. But then adding the layer of a pandemic to that, which, you know, is not just like it's a pandemic, I can't see my friend, is like people are dying, people are dying who may represent the community I'm a part of, and then also as we've seen the amount of people asking black and brown folks for things, right? And so when you sort of 
compound that those layers it's sort of it feels very bleak to to find energy to organize and lead for example like in those pgm1 spaces some of it is like okay we need this space to just sort of share and share about an experience i had which like didn't sit well with me in a courageous space um but then also saying you know are there things that can happen as a collective can we move through something together sharing tasks and duties you know to to accomplish something um and then saying like also i'm going to take a time out because i don't have the energy for this i am hopeful in a small way around the anger that can be channeled into into something more but um i think that change can come from black and brown folks but because of where we live white allies are going to be the ones to um assist in moving the needle fortunately or unfortunately um and that is sometimes unsettling i have a little bit of hope because i need to be able to sleep at night and like not and maintain my sanity but i also need to be a realist around like what's possible and and what the future can look like and know that that is going to take time Okay, so my name is Olivia Williams. So I grew up in the outdoors a lot just because my mom um, used to take us on like hikes and nature walks and things like that. Like that was definitely my entry to the outdoors. And then when I went to college, I started to work in a bike shop to like earn money. A lot of the people I worked with in the shop were mountain bikers. So that was my first exposure to cycling. I definitely enjoyed it when I went and struggled to get into road cycling because mountain biking was the first, my first exposure. I kind of was trying to find a way to reconcile enjoying being in the woods with not being on the road and not having to deal with cars. And that's when I kind of found gravel riding through like the internet. And since then, I have been doing that just because it's a good balance of the two. Like you get the nature, but you don't have to, you know, necessarily like send it every ride. Cycling brings me joy, first of all, because it helps me, you know, be in my body, be present in my body, exercise, get my blood oxygenated. And it's a very good way to think through things. And that's something that I like a lot about um, cycling. It's kind of like exploring your inner world through moving through the outer world. I had a really kind of interesting experience where I was supposed to like do a ride report for um, a super duper white cycling organization who is not as responsive. I'm not gonna like call them out or anything, Um, but who is not genuinely like as responsive to just presenting, I would say like black stories as they are. So like I presented this ride report and it got a lot of edits that to me weren't like grammatical edits or like, you know, um, structural edits, but that were like content edits. I had to sit down with myself and figure out like what was important to keep in that piece so that I'm speaking the truth, you know, about the experience I had. I, I basically had like a racist incident while I was cycling. Just interesting, because I feel like there's such a, an increased demand for like black stories 
but like I don't want to adapt my story to the audience you know like I want to be able to tell the truth and if I'm not able to do that or if people like don't want that then I have to figure out how I'm going to respond my intro to like the serious cycling world besides working in shops was very uplifting and people were really like respectful of my stories and were really willing to listen to me so like coming up against I guess like mainstream cycling was wild because the experience I had was racist and I think that the response that I had to the racism wasn't necessarily well received but my intention is to let people know that when they ask for these stories they're gonna get what we feel and it's not necessarily gonna align with what they think we feel. I don't know, like there's such like an increased demand for like black voices, but you gotta take the black voices like at face value and not really try to like, you know, manipulate them to a narrative. I'm Rachel Olzer. Um, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I'm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is uh, traditional homelands of Dakota and Ojibwe people. Uh, let's see. Well, I learned to ride a bike when I was a kid, like everyone else. Um, and I did, you know, I lived very much that like play outside until the streetlights come on lifestyle. <laughs> and bikes were a big part of that. And then I kind of got away from it for a little bit and I started getting really into rock climbing in college. And um, I really enjoyed it, but I think I was always feeling like I missed the personal element. Like I really didn't feel connected to the community I was a part of. And I really felt like there was just a lot of ego in it for me that didn't feel good. And I think I just kind of got fed up with it. And I had got started getting into mountain biking in college. Um, my partner like had gotten a mountain bike to get to this like climbing area. And then I went on a mountain bike on like an extra large bike, like my in Arizona for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is awful. Like I'm terrified. But then he built me a bike and it was this like Gary Fisher hybrid turned into a 29er mountain bike. <laughs> but I really enjoyed, you know, the thing about it for me was that, um, there are just lots of ways to be a cyclist and lots of ways to be a mountain biker. And that felt really good to me. You know, I could be fast on like not as technical of terrain, which felt really like accessible for me. Um, or I could, you know, try to do more technical stuff and not worry about being like fast or whatever. Right. Like, I just think it's nice that there's a lot of ways to be a cyclist and, it's funny because I got really into bike racing, which which has been great and it's really pushed me as a cyclist. I'm grateful for what it's done for me as an athlete. But then of course there was no bike racing this summer and that's largely how I lived my life in, especially in Minneapolis. Like you can, you could race every day if you wanted to um, in the summer. But so I had to kind of come back to this, like, well, why do I like riding bikes? Because it was like, okay, I'm not training for anything, not racing. It's been fun to kind of rediscover this, like, who am I without the bike racing? 
which is who I was when I started biking, um, you know, a lot back in college. So it's really coming back to that, like, well, I really like being able to, you know, kind of put some things on pause or, you know, just be out there and just be outside. Cause that was a lot of it initially was like, just to be outside. Right. And that's like such a theme of this year for me with cycling is like, it's, it's legit just like a way to be outside of my house. <laughs> you know, a big one that I've been reflecting on recently, you know, as somebody who, you know, has this platform where I focus on storytelling and would, you know, have kind of stepped into this role as like a self-proclaimed storyteller. I've been really focusing on kind of like the stories I tell myself and the ways that that shapes my own perception of what I can and can't do. And you know, like, again, with the bike racing, like, I saw myself as a, as a bike racer, and I was like, I'm not a technical rider, and I don't care to be, because that's not what I do. Everything I do is, like, racing-focused, right? And then, you know, this year, it was like, okay, well, I'm not racing, so I got, you know, squishier bikes, and I now feel like I want to ride more technical stuff and do that, and I could always have done that. It was just all based on, like, the story I was telling myself about, what I can and can't do and who I am as a cyclist. That's been something I've been reflecting on a lot is just learning to always be willing to rewrite those stories and also pushing yourself to remove your ego from everything you do, which is one of those things that I think we all intuitively know is an important thing to work on, but is a really hard thing to implement. <laughs> My name is Caitlin Rivas, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Such like a hard, complex question to answer, but um, I identify as Black. Um, I'm also mixed of uh, multiple ethnicities and races, and I currently live in Detroit, Michigan. I grew up in a very like rural countryside of Northern Michigan and central Pennsylvania. And when I was growing up in rural Michigan, I had this kind of like clump of trees at the edge of our property. And behind that, there was uh, a forest and cornfields. And that was kind of like my 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 brother's laboratory <laughs> for just exploring and adventuring and my family used to bike together we would actually go on um like organized bike trips uh by different local cityhoods and i also in high school got my first job as a dishwasher at a local pizza place and one of the first purchases I made from my job was buying my own bike. And from there, I, um, especially in the summer and then some other times during the fall and spring, would bike what we like to call the block around our house, which is actually probably four or five miles of like hilly, like, you know, farmland. And yeah, so it's really interesting now thinking about it because I grew up in a very white-centric conservative community. And so 
you know, right now I would maybe not feel as comfortable doing that as an adult Black woman, but then as a child, I did not fully have the awareness of what it meant to be a Black body on a bike in the middle of nowhere. And now I have much more, you know, even tangible visual of like when I come back home to my parents, not at their house, but around their house is like Confederate flags and Trump signs and things like that. So it's like, I would never walk or bike there. I don't know. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely like a different experience now coming home. And I talked about this a little bit at WTF, you know, like just being aware of, you know, not only like the history of trauma when it comes to Black folks and nature, but also just the presence of the unknown. And even like, not everybody can pick up on the feelings, but for me as like a deeply emotional, intelligent empath person, I could always pick up on the vibes of like, I don't even want to go near this place you know especially now you know coming back from living on the west coast and other like bigger cities um and almost being like shocked you know because this is not the place that it used to be I mean it is but I didn't see it like that you know when I was younger so I'm always grateful when I learn that my body can do more than I thought it could even in my mind when I say like I can't do this but actually my body can do it. I remember in college, I used to bike basically to school every day, but I also would bike along this path that was right on Lake Superior. And so the bike was something that like brought me to nature and to moments of solitude and beauty, which is something that I've always sought after, um, especially as a creative you know, person. And also just like connecting with other people, especially more recently, who are BIPOC folks within the biking and the outdoor community and just seeing the need to understand how that impacts us and also just how that impacts the broader like environmental justice and racism issues um, and providing just like visibility to that. I actually wrote a um, zine last year as part of a graduate thesis that was all about like radical self-care for Black femmes. And so that really is a way for me to share my experiences of joy and survival, you know, beyond biking alone um, into like other, you know, places of life, because I really see everything as an intersection, you know. I actually run um, a Black feminist library, so I'm very passionate about reading. It's something that I founded last year in 2019 on Juneteenth, which is an incredible, important day. It's the Free Black Women's Library, and it's the Detroit chapter. There's several other chapters in the country. They were really founded on the idea of being mobile, whether it's on a bike or in a car or, you know, public transportation. But bringing books into different neighborhoods. In Detroit, I have brought books to different neighborhoods and even across Southeast Michigan, a couple other cities in the region. It's something that is specifically centering Black women and femme non-binary voices. It's a library that 
wants to uplift those voices and wants to provide not only that representation, but the education that comes along with it. And I believe the liberation that that kind of process kind of allows the reader and even, you know, to think about the author as well and like, you know, how their their voice is able to be perpetuated throughout the community through radical trading of books and information. You know, the library as a holistic system is is a pretty uh, cool system in itself and has been like a community kind of center for a long time, but it's also a place where, you know, we still see largely like white cis men portrayed and even in bookstores too. So this this resource is something that brings books that are, you know, you can see somebody on the back cover that looks like you. And it's not just critical race theory or Black feminism, though those are incredibly important and something that I nerd out about a lot, but it's every genre. Black women, femmes write in every genre, whether it's sci-fi, comic books, poetry, um, children's books. Children's books are so beautiful. And so, yeah, just bringing all the genres to the table, quite literally, and having people interact with the books, which brings a lot of joy. It's funny, I just am realizing this, the bike that I received from WTF, I originally started working with that bike, kind of just like hitch a bike trailer to it and bring a bunch of books in the trailer to an open air, like, performance festival that was a real is a really amazing you know performance arts festival in Detroit where you know thousands of people come and it's something that you know pre-COVID people from all over the world even would come to participate and to witness and so that was like my first iteration of this kind of work which was like last summer and then um, earlier this year I started working with actually some young people here in Detroit that are part of this high school that has a really cool kind of like business trade program where they actually like upcycle old like cargo tricycles that were part of the assembly lines um, in some of the car industry plants that are around Detroit. And they upcycle these bikes and have turned them into a bunch of wonderful bike businesses. Everything from like, there's a flower bike. (laughs) Um, There's one that they've developed to filter water. And then this bike that I'm working on, which is going to be a cargo tricycle, like I said. Um, And like the book cycle movement is quite radical and cool and nerdy and fun. I was super inspired by this other bike library in LA called Flow and it's an acronym for Feminist Library on Wheels and they've been doing similar work to what I'm doing but they kind of do feminism from a broader intersectional lens and not just Black women alone. Um, I don't know so beautiful and so radical to just see Black bodies in that way. I fell off my bicycle today. I fell off, but I got back up. Yes, I got back up. I'm okay. Nothing much. Just a couple scratches. Now I got this beautiful scar, and all of a sudden, I think I'm tough. Now I think I'm I'm broken. Tires over broken glass. And 
these streets I shatter dreams Sometimes I think that I ain't shit But when I'm whipping these two wheels I am like, yes I do exist Certainly I'm mad, certainly I'm here But nothing is for certain And matter disappears So I keep it cool, gotta keep it cool Gotta keep it fluid I don't wanna lose my intuition Or my sense of humor I am sensing this asshole on my right and his two-ton machine versus my 25-pound bike getting so mad. So I say a spell that I wish him well, and I hear a honk, and I see a middle finger fly out his window. I throw a peace sign, then I'm off, undisturbed by the hatred. Yes, I'm annoyed now, but shit, I don't hate you. I got too much light, I got all this light. Look at all this light around me. What would I be letting your fear take a hold and drown me? Hands off me, hands on handlebars. Hands free when I'm feeling I handle on courageousness when I am feeling curiosity when I am wind when I am chaotic I am wind and this ride is my medicine my grandmother's cure-alls prune juice every night and castor oil for every stomach thing and now I'm stomaching and does she gone is she gone we all go we all leave but right now I'ma feel this breeze 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 Everything carries me on my way home I'm grabbing groceries I'm full of gratitude To be riding To be whipping Be whipping Yeah, I have two separate calls to action um, Yeah, I think when I get that question Or hear that question It's like to white people um, And so I think for the For cyclists of color Specifically black cyclists my call to action is like continue to take up space and find and identify ways to center your own joy. Um, and for those of us who like to ride bikes, um, creating more opportunities for other people to have access to bikes and bike space. Whether that's like uh, Irisha was someone I was on a panel with last week and she was saying that she wants to teach more people how to ride bikes, like more black women how to ride bikes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's how I want to spend my time. So like, facilitating the opportunity for more people and sharing that joy is my call specifically to black cyclists I think for the like greater wider cycling community um it's like stand behind the leadership of black indigenous and people of color specifically like black and indigenous people um and what that looks like is giving resources and not your opinions um, of how things should be done or how you've seen them done because obviously it's not working for us money specifically to black and indigenous leadership. And then also resources also in terms of like social capital and networks and connections, really standing behind the leadership with minimal questions asked or no questions. Like there's so much unlearning that I'm doing this year of like, who am I talking to and for and why I've been trying to like, because yeah, I've been trained to answer that question for white people. When people are like, what's your call to action? I like automatically like picture the white audience and I respond to them. And I'm thinking about the times when I've been in the audience um, and I wanted like the person to speak to me. There aren't many organizations in the outdoor space that I, I would say are acting in an accountable fashion. It's more of a like reactionary, trendy, reaction um i'll answer next year like what i think of in terms of accountability um it's i will say it's been cool to see the visibility of black people on bikes um and in these spaces like we've been here it's just like a hyper focus on us right now so yeah i'll give it a year i will say what feels like most powerful right now is moving money and resources 
it's not enough to like say that you're going to like put black people in your campaigns it's like how are you moving your money around and like who are you supporting and are cops still riding your bikes there's been a lot of response right <laughs> um there's been a lot of public letters that go out that say we're solidarity with black life there's been empty plans made by the cycling and outdoor community about how they're going to be in solidarity with Black life. And yet, they've asked very few Black people about the plans that they've made. They've consulted very few Black people, if any at all, about these statements that are really heartfelt. And I believe they think that they're going a good, good deed with stating them, but they're not backed by anything. And that is where it becomes problematic because I and many of us want you to be held accountable for the things that you're saying you're going to do and there's no system of accountability. So what I saw was people get really, really excited and, 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 and heartbroken and felt like they needed to do something and they reacted rather than responded. Reaction could have been simply saying, we stand in solidarity. We're going to go back and evaluate ourselves as individuals, as an organization, and then we're going to partner with, with viable entities to do our own internal work. And then we'll work with other people to develop a plan on how we want to stand in solidarity with Black life. So yeah, the racial reckoning and the call for public accountability brought on by Black Lives Matter, I think, needs to be always held in context to the industry or the community that one represents. So the cycling and outdoor communities have a lot of things that they can do um, to reckon. And I think first, it's, it's very individual. They all need to themselves sit down and think about how they benefit from, the, from Black lives, how the people they're closest to, knowing where the people that they're closest to stand in regards to Black lives. Um, and once that work is done, then they need to look at their organization. So what does it look like? Are there Black people in the organization? Who's getting paid the most money? Who's not being paid? Um, and not bring on people to tokenize them, but just do a solid assessment of where their organization is at. Do a SWOTS analysis. What are your needs? What are your weaknesses? And then bring consultants on other Black folks to contribute to whatever plan you think is a good idea. And have more than one Black person, because what's also not happening is that people who have not been advocates and activists and who are very new to the cycling world but got a lot of followers because their marketing is good, they're being called to tables. And no shame, no shade, but that's not responsible. There are many people who have been in this work far longer that can advise in conjunction with new people that are being brought to the table. But the point is, the reckoning isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen with one Black person at the little table that's been created. And it can happen in a way where all of the outdoor industry, or the outdoor community and cycling community are in alignment with what they're putting out and still individualized specifically for if they're an organization or a business. But I think it's really going back to the drawing table and reassessing how they can approach it internally on a micro level, a macro level, and then a meso level, who needs to be at those tables. And I think it's almost like if you put a call out and said you were in solidarity and offered a plan in the early stages of the current Black Lives Matter movement, you might need to apologize because there's been a lot of harm caused with these um, 
statements of solidarity and an apology from Jump Street stating that like we jumped the gun and we were ahead of ourselves with our statement. And if these communities have black staff, they need to apologize to their black staff because they've often been living under microaggressions and the companies didn't even know it, you know? And so that's also a good place to start is like with the black people who are on your staff and acknowledging that, hey, I may not know the specifics, but I probably, we probably contributed to microaggressions and you didn't deserve that. So one of the things that I've been thinking about as someone who has, I guess, somehow found myself in mobility justice, which I think is a, a really important intersecting point to all of our lives, the same way that I think reproductive justice is a major intersecting point to all of our lives, no matter who you are, what class, what um, race, gender, we all are reproductive beings and we all got to go someplace. So mobility justice has become really near and dear to my heart, even as I work to like understand it. And what I've noticed, um, the black life that's being lost to the to police that is being murdered by the state is happening when people are in motion. Black folks going from one place to another place in public space, not on private property, um, in very public space, whether you're in a car, you're a pedestrian, or you're on a bike. There's an opportunity for folks who are committed to transportation and urban development and urban planning to chime in and recognize this as an issue of their own on how you develop space, why we're developing space the way we are, who is it for and is it safe for everybody? How do we make it safer, which doesn't involve including police? How can Black people feel more comfortable moving through space and time when this is the ex exact places we're being killed by the state? And I can't say that I have an answer, but my call is for more issue areas to make this, make Black life an issue of their own, and particularly transportation and urban planning folks. They have to take it up and see that the way we're planning transportation, the way that we're planning space needs to be intersected and intertwined in how to contribute to, to Black life continuing and being able to show up in these spaces and not be at risk for being murdered. And somehow that ties into defunding the police and finding new ways to care for ourselves in public space with each other. It's a public health issue. It's a transportation issue. It's an urban planning issue. It's a police violence issue. It's a governmental issue. It's all of these. And we can't keep organizing the way that the United States tends to organize, which is not in an intersectional way. We need a bunch of different type of people at these tables working together to come up with solutions um, rather than coming up with solutions in silos. A lot of it is starting to happen, right? Or it has been happening. Like I, I love the like representation matters has been our like call for a few years now in, in the cycling industry um, and the outdoors industry. And I love that we've seen in this year a shift to like reclaiming uh, rather than just representing ourselves, right? And I'll speak for myself as a black person, um, but the black community especially has really been grappling with this notion that we are not outdoors people or the outdoors was not meant for us. When in reality, the outdoors in a lot of ways is what has saved us, has, um, you know, given us that 
that autonomy or that sovereignty to self. I really appreciated at one point, I think it was uh, Tamika that said, you know, black people been outside, we've been sitting on porches, we've been sitting on stoops, we've been walking around the block, we've been on the block. It's just like defining what that outside looks like for us and then deciding how we're gonna use it, whether it's um, for a healing moment or for a gathering moment. You know, these cycling and outdoor industries and communities that are, you know, predominantly white have a responsibility to hold themselves accountable and hold their other white counterparts accountable, right? Like if we're gonna talk about like the cycling industry, we know that there are many bike brands that sell bikes to police departments. Um, and so what responsibility do those brands have in shaping their contracts with police departments, if they're if they're gonna say we're gonna keep on enjoying policing, what is their responsibility in helping shape that police department? In my opinion, policing and prison should all be abolished. So then it's a, a, a deeper conversation of how do those um, bike brands and industry leaders uh, rethink the ways that they want to gift the bicycle to the community, right? Because I would love to see like a program where social workers and medical workers get bicycles through a lot of these companies. If every assembly member that was able-bodied could come to their meetings by bike, that would be amazing. The best term I can use to describe what I've seen is scrambling. There seems to be this, um, oh shit, we need to do something and do something quickly. It's like you know, uh, like PR teams, like nightmare, right? Like, I guess I could say I'm grateful that folks' eyes have been open. I'm sad that this is what it took, but that awareness is necessary. And I'm hopeful that brands will start to um, have some internal shakedowns and recognize that it starts from the inside. Hiring, supporting employees who have different perspective experiences, backgrounds, also a recognition that, especially for outdoor brands, that black and brown folks were outside before you were claiming that outside was free. It's also important for folks, um, I'd say white allies, to um, have accountability partners. I think as one is learning, um, accepting that you will mess up, you may not get everything right and, and that's okay, but having a space where you can um, talk through some of that like white guilt is really important because I think that there's really no way to adequately explain the lived experience of, um, I think a black person, indigenous person, person of color to someone who hasn't lived that experience, right? And so while someone may experience this uncomfortable space where someone like made a statement about something you said, which was off base and disrespectful. That is one experience of a time where you felt hurt because you thought you knew something or were doing something right and you weren't. There is often this American, and I am an American, right? There's this American like value of like, I'm an individual and I have these ideas and I need to be given a pat on the back for those ideas. And it's like, okay, not so. But that is, I think, a space often white folks are operating in. Um, and the first to discover something or to, to have the light bulb, and it's like, you know, I guess it's called entitlement, perhaps. And I think that shedding those layers is really key.
so I definitely feel like there's gonna have to be a point where people get past the idea that like being called out for racism or lack of representation is like a punitive thing like it's like punishment and they're gonna have to realize what uh, black folks bring to the table instead you know like instead of avoiding getting in trouble or avoiding being like quote unquote canceled like they need to figure out that us being there is adding to their organizations in a way that they don't even begin to they, they can't even really begin to understand until we're there that's the first thing and then the second thing is you know when you do get black people in these organizations make sure to really listen to them and instead of trying to like impose your ideas of what you know blackness is or what black people should be like or what their background should be really listen to that individual person I feel like oftentimes narratives are imposed on people um, instead of them being able to feel empowered to speak the truth and if a narrative is uncomfortable or if it calls out like rather than just calling out racism as an idea if it calls out a racist you know <laughs> like sometimes people will kind of like shrink back but in order to be good, you know, allies or accomplices, you're going to have to definitely take those stories at face value, not try to edit them, not try to take away from their core messaging. And, and that's something that I've seen happening a lot with like an increased call for Black voices. It's like, we have an increased call for Black voices if you fit to this certain you know, these certain parameters and you can only speak on these certain topics. Another like observation that I've made is that people don't really realize that black folks can talk about things besides racism, <laughs> like, or their experience with racism. We don't always have to talk about racialized trauma. There are so many other things that black folks bring to the table, like ex different experiences, different areas of expertise that are just being like lost because people just want to kind of, you know, reach like a superficial diversity quota. And that that can't be, that's not what's going to improve this industry. I would say in my experience, if there's black folk in your circle, you know, uh, listen to what they're saying. And then like really protecting black people is like very important because you know, I mean, where I ride, oftentimes you're going through some of these rural areas and it's a very racist part of the country in many, many parts of Georgia that we ride through. So I always feel really supported when my fellow riders are really attuned to the area that we're riding through and the attitudes of the people that we are encountering, because that's something that as a Black person is always in the back of my mind. I'm always running through, okay, you know, kind of performing constant vibe checks on, <laughs> you know, all the people around me. I would say that's very important. Like be attuned to what's going on, protect your friends. You know, like we all wanna make it out of this ride safely and happily. On a, on a literal like granular basis, like as the ride is going on, check in with your friends, see how they're feeling. Oftentimes I have been going through things on my own or like struggling 
with feeling unsafe on my own and I didn't really feel like I wanted to bring it up to the group because it's like we're just trying to get the ride done but if I'm riding somewhere and I feel like uncomfortable I, it would help me to know that the people around me are gonna try to help me and protect me I feel like sometimes with a lot of corporations approach like DEI as how can we just not get in trouble and I don't ever want to like help a person or help a company whose intent is just not to get in trouble you know like I always want to be helping companies whose intent is to supply you know my community with the best possible like products you know like because we do bring so much and it's just like constantly I don't want to say like devalued but we bring a lot that they need to recognize so I've been a part of the movement since it started I like I remember when it started and I have a degree in gender, women, and sexuality studies as well from my undergrad. And like I focused my senior thesis on hashtag activism because that had started when I was, you know, a junior, senior in college. And I've seen all the various ways that it's evolved, you know, because initially it was like, you know, we're going to talk about police reform. And then it was kind of like, okay, police reform isn't working. And then, you know, and now it's moved all the way in the direction of abolition, which I'm I'm for and I fully support. It's interesting. Like, I remember people were kind of about it when it started and then people were less about it for a while. And then it was like deemed a hate group. And then it was like, no, it's not a hate group. (laughs) It's almost surreal seeing it come full circle in 2020 and seeing literally all of corporate America like make statements in some form or another, um, including the cycling industry, because I honestly thought I would never see the day that would happen. <laughs> like after it was deemed a hate group, I was like, we're screwed. Like this is never going to happen. Like it's, it's been really inspiring on one hand to see that, um, especially initially, I think there was a lot of momentum. But now that a lot of the momentum, I think, especially outside of Minneapolis, has died down, it's scary and I think it's disheartening. It's almost like a massive slap in the face to see that much momentum and to be like, wow, we could actually really get a lot of stuff done if people put their weight behind this. And then for people to kind of like take that away has felt so sobering. I do try to remain positive because I don't think that, you know, having a nihilistic view of it is helpful for me, at least. I want to believe that it just means that people are doing the internal work. Like maybe they're not showing up in public, whether that's online or in person anymore, but maybe that means they're like doing the personal work, the internal work. I think it's really good that the cycling community and cycling brands saw like a need for them to be a part of it. And I would hope moving forward that there's gonna be more of that. <laughs> Cause the work is definitely not done. I mean, I was really like impressed with, you know, some brands initially were like, we're divesting like entirely, like we're ending these police contracts. And that was really cool to see. It was like, okay, yeah. like. This is a model for what needs to happen moving forward. If companies are serious about 
you know, supporting black cyclists or indigenous writers or, you know, other writers of color, like really committing to giving money to people who are already out there doing the work. To be totally frank, I'm really sick of feeling like people will reach out to me and be like, I'm starting this organization. Will you be a part of it? It's like, no, I have my own organization. Like, just give me money to do the thing I'm already doing. <laughs> like, I don't want to be like, I don't want to give my time to something I'm not invested in in any way so that you can feel good about having like a black woman be part of your organization. Like I have my own stuff going, literally putting money into the things that are already happening. And not making it ridiculously hard for people to like access those resources is a really big one too. Like I understand that some vetting process is necessary, but you know, it's like, damn dude, I, I could use money for pedal to the people, but like, I don't have time to apply for 15,000 grants, you know? <laughs> so like one of the first things that happened after um, George Floyd's death was the university of Minnesota was like, we're not going to contract with, Minneapolis Police Department anymore and that was like huge it was like whoa this is like a this is historic like nobody has ever done this before I firmly believe that at some point the University of Minnesota has to say like look we have a duty to keep all of our students safe and because we have students of color that includes them and I kind of feel the same about companies. Like if your company is all white, then yeah, you're just going to see this as like, oh, that sucks for them. But when you have like people within your company who are like identifying with these movements, like it isn't like, oh, I feel sad for them. Like those are your people now. And I think that is actually really huge. I really want to see people like embody the growth and, and learning and movement the same way that race as a, as an example is something I never stopped thinking about like other people should not stop thinking about that stuff um, and that doesn't mean that you don't like have boundaries or care for yourself like within that work but like legit just seeing everything as like with that like lens of like what are the potential ways that this might be perpe perpetuating systems of oppression you know it's frustrating to have people like claim to care about this stuff and then when you kind of like you know say like oh you know that might actually this thing that you're really jazzed on sounds kind of racist or you know or like I can see potential pitfalls to this and people get like really resistant to seeing that it's just so frustrating and like but if you're always like looking at something with a you know obviously what we would call a critical lens then you're like open to seeing how like everything is built on like these systems of oppression, which means that we have to be really careful and really willing to like see how whatever projects we have in the future or whatever things we might do can like uphold that. I think the biggest way, a major way to be in solidarity, and this is, like tangible actually, uh, access to cycling for our communities. The pricing of bikes, the availability of bikes, the pricing of repair for bikes, um, biking lanes in black and brown communities, biking lanes or, or places where people can cycle safely and freely, lower income communities, marginalized communities, whatever people like to call them, you know, basically communities who have been forgotten. That's what I call them, forgotten communities. We haven't forgotten them, but anyone with the 
the money to do something have forgotten us, willingly or unwillingly. Um, so the biggest thing that allies with change can do is start implementing projects and strategies that infuse our communities with bikes. One, because beyond prayers, beyond magic, they are modes of transportation for people who might not otherwise have access to transportation versus public tra uh, public transportation. And I say that and I say that specifically because here in Puerto Rico, our trains and buses have been shut down since COVID started. And I see more and more and more people on makeshift bikes, like bikes that have been put together from other bikes. And it's crazy to me because I pass bike shops with brand new bikes in the window. And I wonder if anyone has thought to really start bringing bikes to communities who have depended on these bus and trains. I think that's a huge thing. I think cycling seems out of reach for some folks once, once they pass 16, 17, because it's, it's not, you're no longer on this children's bike, you know, now your bike costs 300, $325, 150 if you get a decent one from Walmart. But I know right now, 150 looks crazy to me. So I can't only imagine someone with less access than I do, you know what I'm saying, or less availability of funds than I do. And so that's a major component, access. Do the communities of color, do black communities, around you have access to bicycles. Are their biking lanes safe or are they narrow AF where biking just doesn't even, it's not even a safe thing. In Atlanta, it's actually against the law to bike on the sidewalk. So I think that's a huge thing is access. And I think sometimes people don't wanna put their money where their mouths are when it comes to access because it may, maybe it could be, and we're not talking relay bikes where they have to put quarters or apps you know, we're talking about actual, like, drop off some bikes to the community to folks who need bikes, right? And then if we're talking about allies who don't, how do you advocate to your people who do, that have that type of access to funds for access to happen? And so I think that's the, it's really the only thing that comes to mind in this movement right now, is I can't get more Black folks on bikes if I can't get more bikes for Black folks. Um, and I think it's sad that we need non-black voices to amplify that but we do it's it's the world we live in and then i mean outside of that it's just shutting shutting the whole narrative down that we don't belong in cycling that it's not our thing that we shouldn't be here we shouldn't be here in droves we don't have the right to have exclusive black rides all of that just shutting it down amongst your people i think the hardest thing to do is to talk among your folks how are people going to change their harmful rhetoric or their harmful ideologies or their harmful complicitness if we don't bring it to their attention? If the people who love them the most, who know that they're not wretched human beings, you know, let them know, hey, that's some wretched behavior you got going there. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it so we could be better and so we could be on the same page moving forward. Like we're not playing oppression Olympics here. Everyone has been harmed by white supremacy, even white people. So why are we arguing about who benefits from the dismantling? Everyone does. From the ants to the clouds, everyone benefits from the dismantling of white supremacy. So if it takes you talking to your Thea and blocking her on Facebook, dale, por favor, because we have to. We have to. We all have to. 
Black folks have to have their conversations around colorism and homophobia and everything in their com in, in their families and anti-blackness that is within ourselves, right? I have to have the conversations with Boricuas around anti-blackness and all of that. Indigenous folks, everyone has to have conversations within their family. It's the one thing that no one's exempt from. And white supremacy lies to us and tells us that having these conversations causes divide. And even people amongst our own people will tell us, well, why are you dividing us like this, right? We have to negate that. We have to tell people that that's not true. It's not true to have these conversations as a division. And so we have to make sure that we're not believing the lies. Allyship looks like being just as cognizant of what racism looks like in all its iterations when you are out and about living in your privilege. It means like having to actively be aware of what is happening around you. What are the people who look like you? doing to the people who don't look like you around you. So if me as a black woman, I'm walking down the street and I see a cop stop a brother or another sister or another black person, and my initial reaction is to step forward and like, or at least stand there and be present and let the police officer know, hey, someone else is watching you. Those are the same actions we expect from our allies. And I think those are the actions that we're not getting anymore. I think it was a hot take for a couple of months earlier in the year. And now it's super performative and that's more harmful than when it's actionable and when it's proven and when it's tangible. So can your allyship be performative? Because if it is, then I'm still in danger. And now if you're with me, we're both in danger because you don't know how to act as, a, as an ally, and you don't know how to exert your power and privilege to keep us both safe, honestly, if we're in the same proximity to each other. So it, it's, a, it's a conversation that really needs to be had. And it needs to be had openly. It needs to be having lovingly, but also like fiercely, because we need folks to understand, of course, danger, lives are in danger everywhere, from me stepping out the door to me stepping back in my house. But if I'm going to places that are perhaps remote or historically known as white things, because let's talk about it, right? Like hiking is a white thing. Cycling is a white thing. Kayaking is a white thing. So if I'm, I have the, the audacity to occupy this space, I'm gonna automatically perhaps piss somebody off. And so when you're saying I'm a biking ally or I'm a hiking ally or I'm an outdoors ally, I need you to really tell me what that means for you because Posting BLM on social media is not going to protect me from whoever might be in these spaces that doesn't want me there. Because I think about it often, even in Puerto Rico, when my when my wife wants to go hiking or, or mountain biking, I think about, well, what part of town are we going to? Who has historically been over here? And I don't want to have to do that. It sucks that we have to do that. It sucks that I even need allyship to do that safely, you know, to speak to that so that these spaces are made more available for us. But it's our birthright to do it. The land is just as much as ours. And so, you know, we need people to, we need people of the people who stole it to say, hey, actually, they belong here. Thanks for joining us for part two of the Within and Without podcast series. Music for this episode was by the band Your Heart Breaks, and our logo design is by the talented Molly Sugar. We'll see you in the next episode.